Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. As a company, you can't buy authentic relationships in community. That's just not going to happen. And if you're going to try to create authentic relationships at the local community level, you have to know the negative footprint that you created in community. You have to atone for that. You have to atone for that in your actions, your systems and structures that you created with local community. Hey. My name is Mallory, and I'm obsessed with helping leaders in the nonprofit space raise money and run their organizations differently. What the Fundraising is a space for real and raw conversations to both challenge and inspire you. Not too long ago, I was in your shoes, uncomfortable with fundraising and unsure of my place in this sector. It wasn't until I started to listen to other experts outside of the fundraising space that I was able to shift my mindset and ultimately shift the way I show up as a leader. This podcast is my way of blending professional and personal development so we as a collective inside the nonprofit sector can feel good about the work we are doing. Join me every week as I interview some of the brightest minds in the personal and professional development space to help you fundamentally change the way you lead and fundraise. I hope you enjoy this episode, so let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with John Brothers. John, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thanks for having me. This will be exciting. Let's kick off with you just sharing a little bit about you, your background, and what brings you to our conversation today. Yeah. So first, again, thank you for having me. So I guess, you know, at first, my role here uh, at Tiro Price is that I have the good fortune of leading um, both its uh, corporate philanthropy uh, and community investment work. Uh, and then I also lead a donor advised fund here uh, called Tiro Price Charitable and a lot of community engagement efforts on behalf of the, the firm. Uh, I've been at Tiro for about eight and a half years and I come to Tiro previously as what they called a pracademic, uh, which is I had a consulting firm that did a lot of work with philanthropy and government and large nonprofits all over the globe, uh, about 40 countries. And then, um, and then I was a professor uh, and wrote books and did speeches and all that kind of stuff. And but I started my career as um, as a community organizer and a case manager, and then working uh, definitely in in uh, local communities. Grew in those roles to to lead uh, a number of, of of local nonprofits working on a variety of areas. So so yeah, so I'm excited about uh, kind of taking all of those experiences and using them to um, to better philanthropy. Yeah. Okay. So hearing about your experience, your position and sort of advocacy for nonprofits becomes abundantly clear. I think one of the first ways in which I got introduced to your work was, was through a LinkedIn post where you were talking about sort of the dysfunctional relationship between a lot of donors and nonprofits and not just the dysfunctional relationship that exists, but the way that we talk about it in this sector and the way that we continue to promote that dysfunction through like fundraiser advice that continues to perpetuate it. So let's just dive into like the meat right away from yeah. given your experience on both sides. Like what do you see as some of the biggest problems and power dynamics that exist between nonprofits and funders. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a number of them. And again, I think I should just start at a base level that folks in all different realms, whether you're a donor, I mean, there's a there's a blend between donor and practitioner and, and things like that. And so everyone is at that root level is caring about, you know, wanting to make the world a better place. And I think that's great. My experience is somebody who, what I often say, has gotten soup from the ladle, right? I grew up in poverty and homelessness and understand what it is like to receive a service. Uh, but then I also I've ladled soup and I've managed soup ladlers and I've raised money on behalf of soup ladling. And now I give money to soup ladling. And so I've seen all different aspects of that. And so even with the best of intentions, you can do damage uh, with your approach. And so for us here, at least at T-Row, we spend a lot of time talking about the how of our philanthropy or the how of our community investment and community engagement work. And I think for local communities, if you talk to fundraisers or you talk to anyone that's running a nonprofit and you talk about relationships they have with with funders and some of the challenges, they're never really going to talk about um, the amount of money. Although, of, of course, right, that they'd like more. What they're going to talk about is the way they were treated by the systems and structures that were happening. And so one a good example is that of that is the work around evaluation, right? If Mallory, if you and I were playing a drinking game and we use the word impact, we'd be drunk in two minutes. It's an overly used word in our sector. It's important, but no one wants impact more than the folks that are in local communities, right? No one is sitting back saying, I can't wait for a funder to tell us about impact. But what often happens in this work is that funders start to kind of say, hey, I want impact. What are, show me the, the numbers and and start to walk into what we view community as really sacred ground of people every day getting their fingernails dirty and working really hard on behalf of their local community. And so for me, where I might not know anybody by name in these communities will walk in and say, hey, show me what, uh, you know, step on a scale is often we talk about it is and tell us how much you weigh. And then we're going to tell you what we think you should weigh. Now, imagine Mallory, if I walked in your home and did that at, at easiest level, tell me to get out of your house. And at the worst level, you might, you might uh, incur violence upon me, right? <laughs> so it is not my job to walk into your home and tell you to step on a scale and then tell you what to weigh, what might, you know, and also majority of organizations are small to mid-sized nonprofits, just like small to mid-sized businesses. They don't have R&D departments. They don't have the infrastructure based on our funding mechanisms to be able to do this work really, you know, the impact work really, really well. And so their hands are tied behind their back. And yet we ask them to do a variety of things to show impact that they just don't have the capacity to do. My responsibility as a, as a, a supporter of local communities is to try to help them be the best learners they can be uh, and try to help them figure out, you know, they know what their North Star is. If they're working on third grade reading, they want all third graders to read, right? That that's a huge indicator on school success. They know that. They don't need me to tell them that. They don't need my white paper on it. They don't need me to tell them from a conference I went to. They know what they want. My job is to say, okay, well, do you know what progress is? And they may, and they, and they may not know it as well as they'd like. Then my job is to support them to try to help them figure that out. My job is not to tell them that. My job is to give them the infrastructure. That's what these local organizations struggle with is infrastructure. And so my job is to try to give them the infrastructure they need so that they can walk to their own defined self-determinations uh, and me to provide 
the infrastructure and, and supports they need to be able to do that. So oftentimes with impact and scale and evaluation, we, we impart our own kind of mechanisms of what we believe that they should have. Uh, and oftentimes those mechanisms actually cause damage, not they don't help. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna check an assumption that I'm making, which is that when you say invest in infrastructure, that might mean that you invest in overhead. Yeah, I mean, at least for us, like you know, what I realize in this is that you know we are practitioners of trust based social good or trust based philanthropy, and so that's another norm that we practice. It's not our job to give program dollars, right? Our job is to invest in them. And so we only give general operating. We only think about organizational health, right? Like if Tiro is making an investment in Coca-Cola, we're not going to say in our investment that we only want to invest in Diet Coke, right? (laughs) We're just not going to do that, right? We're going to invest in Coca-Cola because we think Coca-Cola as a company has the organizational health dynamics that's going to return our investment and then some more. But we're the only industry in which we make investments, but we make them in Diet Coke. And that just makes no sense. And so for us, our job is to just get, you know, trust them, give them the resources they need to be able to do that and allow them. And then what other infrastructure needs that they have? Overhead rates is not our, our job is not to get into overhead rates. Now, what we do know is that healthy overhead rates for organizations are between 27 and 31% based on our data. So if you're given below 20% on overhead, or if you have a policy that says that, you're likely strangling the organization and the information that you've been given on overhead is flawed. There isn't one data source that says, give below 20% and the organization will do well. That all comes from a source of distrust. And that's a distrust that the funder needs to check themselves on, not the organization. I feel like the last five minutes might have brought tears to a lot of nonprofit leaders' eyes. Truly, I mean, I think like there's this paternalism in the nonprofit sector that is so toxic and so harmful and has huge implications on the health of the overall organization. And I am particularly focused in my work on the the mental, physical, emotional health of the fundraiser and the toll it takes on them to be consistently navigating what does everybody else feel like is valuable versus what do we know to be truly valuable and impactful inside and to hold those two things in balance. It's crazy making. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. I mean, I think the thing I would also say, Mallory, you're speaking to also not just philanthropy funders, but you're speaking to a whole ecosystem of helpers of funders who, you know, I was a fundraiser, right? I have my CFRE. I remember raising dollars and I remember going to conferences in which I was looking for the latest and greatest of the newest buzzwords to help my clients get to a certain place. And you would walk in and, and, and learn, you know, the whole industry of helping philanthropy is also geared on these power dynamics, right? And, and so I think for, for those that are involved in the act of raising resource on behalf of organizations, they ultimately have to also, as a, as a, ask the question, as somebody who represents the helping industry, am I doing harm? Or am I helping? Many in the helping industry, whether it's technology, right, that's set up to count things, right, or 
or evaluation consultants or, or tools and resources or a variety of other helping, they are often doing damage. And so what often happens is philanthropy is like, well, that's the tool that does that. If right now philanthropy said as an industry that we no longer care, you know, we're not longer going to be focused, primarily focused on scale and that we are focused on organizational health, the helping industry would immediately change. It would. The, the booths at our conferences would look different. The buzzwords would be different. All of the things that set up the apparatus of philanthropy helping or, or the actual funders would just change immediately. And so I think for those that are in the helping industry, con- consulting or technology, they just, they really need to ask the question, am I upholding power dynamics that exacerbate the problem? And if you are doing that, then you need to figure out how you get on the right side. Uh, of doing that. Listen, I understand everybody needs to eat, but I also understand your quest to do work in this way could be hurting local community uh, each and every day. And it's obviously these folks at the local level, the challenges are by a million little cuts. It's not one thing. It's all of these things and you grab them together and you realize uh, that you're really choking and bleeding nonprofits in a really negative way. So I can imagine that practicing trust-based philanthropy inside an entity that is a part of capitalism that then goes by these kind of two different sets of rules. Like when you said that piece around, like, what if we were focused on their wellness instead of their scale? Like that is very much in conflict with most of the messages we get about all of the elements of our life on a daily basis, right? So what is, what is T-Row do inside, like what is the inner work inside your organization on your teams to be able to hold the discomfort of operating in a way that is different than the way that folks are likely invited to and encouraged to operate in so many different modalities in their life? Yeah, it's such a really good question, Mallory. So the first thing is, you know, we started our trust-based journey in 2016, uh, following in 2015 unrest that had happened in Baltimore after the death of Freddie Gray. And it was unrest that we saw all over the, the country. But as, you know, and that was just so happened to be my, when the unrest happened, my first week in Baltimore in this role. And so what I did as a, you know, what I know as a former community organizer is that being a good listener is truly the best way to be helpful at the local level. And so I sat in the pews of churches and in, com- you know, uh, community centers and local schools after this unrest had happened to kind of listen to what was really important uh, to community. And again, we heard lots of things about the how, right? We heard definitely, hey, these are things that we'd like to happen. But we also said, you know, heard the reason that folks are really challenged right now and 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 are in an uprising is because of the how of our systems. And so when folks at Tiro would say, well, what should we do, John? Or, you know, I would say, well, there isn't anybody in West Baltimore where the unrest is happening that's saying, I can't wait for Tiro to be here. And companies are really good. If they're a great company, they're good at listening to their customers. And for us, listening to community is essentially us listening to our customers. And so that was one of the first of a number of avenues in which we would point to business practice and say, you all do this on the business side. Why would we do this any differently? So when we moved to general operating multi-year support, we, you know, we, we had folks that were like, well, why would we do this? Right. Because they had been conditioned 
in philanthropy to be driven by the idea that you give money in this way. The staffing structure had been developed in this way. And what we said is, do you all make investments year only in year increments? Of course not. You don't, you think about long term, right? Do you give program dollars? We talked about this. No, we don't, right? We don't, we give, we invest with this mind frame. So it was when we started to use the business practice of the firm, feedback loops, right? Uh, giving beyond the check, right? All of these different things that trust based philanthropy and social good is all about was easier to make the argument inside a company because that's the way they thought about their customer. And so we were able to use customer dynamics to ultimately develop an operating approach that looks much different, right? We don't have program officers, right? We don't have, you know, we only, our North Star is strong leaders, strong organizations, and strong networks. We don't have program focus, right? Because we think actually program focus actually makes the sector weaker. Right. Uh, and so we, over time, using the business approach at Tiro actually helped us make our arguments that much more secure. Now, I should say most philanthropy is a corporate derivative. So corporate philanthropy. But then if you look at someone that's obtained wealth, they likely got wealth in a connection to a company. And so oftentimes private foundations, which, again, are, are often derivatives of corporate uh, mind frames will use some of the same things that we, in fact, saw here at, at, at Tiro. Um, but once we got folks understanding this approach and using some of the values that the company had, it became quite easy to change our model for sure. Yeah, I, it's so interesting because I've always wondered, you know, when boards of directors, for example, are made up of folks who have big marketing roles at companies, but then they slash the marketing for their nonprofit when right. times are tough. And it does seem sometimes really difficult to like translate the things that we know to be true in other structures to nonprofits. And then other times we're like over prescribing business practices to the nonprofit sector. And so it feels like this very fine line. Yeah, it's so true. I think one of the, you know, we have a couple positions that we have taken, one of them is around governance. So what we see, and we think the state of nonprofit governance is supremely broken. When, gov when boards were created, boards were created more akin to community organizing structures, right? Like not to get too historical, but like when Alexis de Tocqueville came to America and was amazed by our associations, his language, he was ultimately amazed by the ability of community members to come together on behalf of an issue that they really believed in. At the heart, that's what boards of nonprofits are supposed to be. Now boards is our uh, nonprofit boards are where strategy often goes to die. And no one is, you know, you see people not excited about being on board members. You're seeing this trend of people. It's a hard to get people to join boards and, but it's not hard for people to join movements. It's not hard for people to get excited about an issue. And that's the essential challenge is that we have professionalized governance so much to be oftentimes very close to corporate governance, when in fact, nonprofit governance is supposed to, to be different. That's what makes us unique. That's what makes us special. Uh, and this, you know, and again, around governance, we have a whole industry of helpers that tell us have these types of committees, meet this often, do all of these things that make governance farther away from its original intent. And I think that's just an example of company. You know, I, I, I love being here at Tiro. 
I love the ability to be able to do what I do with my team in community from a corporate place. But I also know the difference between a corporate place and a nonprofit place. And I know the beauty of the nonprofit sector is not at every instance to be more like companies. When I hear someone say, yeah, I'm trying to run my nonprofit like a company, I want to know what they mean by that, right? Because you can run a really good nonprofit and you don't have to be like a company, that those aren't, those aren't um, mutually exclusive, right? So, so I think that's just one example of a number of examples that we, you know, for us, we think collaboration and partnership in the nonprofit sector doesn't, has not worked for a while, right? And there's reasons for that, right? And that's supposed to be one of the bedrocks of our, of the nonprofit community is our ability to what we call share sugar. Mm. And we're just not good at it, right? And so Mm -hmm. there's just a couple of things that have caused our sector to move farther away. Philanthropy in many instances are part of the reasons why we've moved farther away from that. And I think the idea is to try to get us back to basics in some of these areas. Hi, it's Mallory. I'm so excited to be partnering with my friends at Instill to bring you these episodes all about how we truly enable fundraisers, which include everything from building effective habits to real relationships in order to raise more for your organization. There is so much wisdom in this series, but we know we can't cover everything here. That's why I'm launching a mini course on habit and behavior design for fundraisers specifically. And here's the best part. Instill is sponsoring this course for a year, which means it's 100% free to you. The mini course is launching live on January 25th. To sign up and come live or get the recording, go to MalloryErickson.com backslash habits to sign up. When you've spoken to folks who run, you know, foundations at other companies or when you've tried to advocate perhaps for other companies to model their, their partnership practices in similar ways. What are the, what's the biggest pushback you get and how do we start to overcome that? Yeah. So what I know is this, (laughs) other philanthropies don't like it when other philanthropies tell them what to do. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Yeah. But this is what I will say. We have had since uh, the beginning of 2020, over 200 global brands approach us to say, we want to have authentic relationships and community. We've heard about what you've done in Baltimore and, you know, can you help us think about that? Or they're there for a reason, right? Like, you know, we don't have a marketing campaign that says, look at us. We do things like this when people ask us and, you know, people say, hey, you got, you should talk to Tiro. They're doing some stuff over there. That's interesting. And we'll talk about it. You know, and when we get a company that approaches us, like right after the murder of George Floyd, we had, you know, nearly 20 Minneapolis companies uh, approach us to say, hey, like we want you know, we, we want to learn from you. You know, and our, you know, what we commonly say is number one, as a company, you can't buy authentic relationships and community. That's just not going to happen. And two, especially in relation to what was happening in Minneapolis, those folks on 38th in Chicago in Minneapolis were not only out there because they lost their brother, their neighbor, their friend in George. They're upset by the conditions that were created in which the corporate community had involvement in. And so reconciliation is a big deal. And if you're going to try to create authentic relationships at the local community level, you have to know the negative footprint that you created in community. You have to atone for that. You have to atone for that in your actions, your systems and structures that you created with local community. And for philanthropy, that's often 
could be your application. Does your application look at community as needs? Do you use that language when you think about community? Because that's not how community sees themselves, right? Like there's a variety of, of small to large ways in which you do and have done damage in community that you have to get knowledgeable about. And if you've done that, that, you know, if you walk, if I've walked, Mallory, if I've again walked in your home and I've kicked a hole in your television, spray painted your wall and moved your furniture around, you're naturally not going to be like, Hey, let's hug it out. We've done damage. And, you know, you have to understand where you've done damage and you have to rework your way of doing business so that you can develop trust in community, not for the sake of just having trust. When you have authentic relationships at the community level, the work is better. The work is better. And you should be every day fighting to do the work as best as you can. If you're sitting back and saying, well, we have a grant application, it's fine the way it is. And that application causes community to feel small, to talk about them in ways that are challenging. You're not doing your best work. And you're, in fact, by doing your work, you're doing damage. So that's, you know, in our conversations with companies is to just say, Look at the way in which you show up in community. What is the bedside manner through your processes that you have? Are they doing damage? And if you don't know, then develop trust with partners who will let you know. We have partners that push their thumb in our side all the time and they feel safe doing it, right? They know that if they say this didn't look right or this felt wrong, that we're not going to punish them for that, right? That And it's... They wouldn't even think of it that way, right? And so that's a big, big point for us is that if you don't know, you know, we have, there's this thing out there called trust washing where people are saying, yeah, we're trust. Our partners trust us. Do they? Because they may be telling you what you want to hear because of the dynamic, right? And I think we know, you know, if you, you know, uh, in a relationship, there are always challenges. And if you've never gotten feedback back that said, you're showing up in a way that's knocking down China in the, you know, in the store, then you've got, then you're likely you don't have the relationships you need. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear the other side of that all the time. I'll have fundraisers tell me, Oh, we have a great relationship with so-and-so. And then when there's some type of issue and I'm like, okay, so let's like push around this or let's bring this up. This isn't working very well. You know, and they're like, Oh, we can't say that. And I'm like, okay, so what does good relationship mean then? It can't just be about the movement of money. And so this piece that you just said this thing, you know, they feel safe doing that. And I feel like over the last few years, we've seen this boom in conversation around psychological safety and, you know, creating safe environments, but we're still treating that as if it's just process, as opposed to safety actually being like an experience that we feel in our body. I feel safe enough to tell you this thing without and and safe enough to know that I'm not going to be retaliated against. I, I want to talk, I, I want to talk more about some of the the institutionalized or process pieces that y'all have set up, but I'm curious if there's something else there. Like, like what do you think how do you guys show up that helps nonprofits feel safe. Yeah. So I think that's really good. So, so a couple of things, listen, I know if I was to walk in a room with, with fundraisers that my jokes are going to be way funnier than they really are. (laughs) And I'm going to be a lot smarter than I really am. Mm. Just that natural nuance is a problem 
Now, listen, I, if I say a funny joke, I want you to laugh at it. If I said something that's interesting, I want, you know, that's nice to know. But I know that energy in that room for that reason is part of the problem. Uh, you know, I had a, 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 a two people approach me when I first got to Tiro. And this just illustrates in, you know, being that you focus on the, the kind of the mental health and the care of fundraisers, I think this will, will be helpful. I hope it is. You know, when I first got to Tiro, you know, someone leading a foundation in a, in, uh, can, in cities like Baltimore can be like seeing a unicorn. Like these roles don't change that much. And so I was rel- you know, I was new to Baltimore. And so a number of folks wanted to meet this new person. And we had a community leader, uh, approach us saying, Hey, I want to meet. Uh, we invited them to Tiro in all of our marble and wood that you often see mm. in companies. Uh, went to one of 37 of our conference rooms. And when this individual who was revered, who is and was revered in their community and had earned that through years of years of work on the ground, trusted newer neighbors by name, all the things that you would want, special person. It's an honor for me to meet her. That's what, you know, I view it as came to us and immediately we said our names and this individual pulled out charts and graphs to show me how important she was or her organization was and said, look at all the arrows are going up. Aren't I worthy? And I said, no, that's cool. But like, tell me more about yourself. For her, it was so confusing to be talked. And I'm not saying me talking to her is special. I'm saying it's natural to someone that you've just met to just want to get to know about them. But for her, she had prepped she had put on, she had done all of this stuff and she had formatted in her brain that this is the way in which she would view my value of her. And ultimately when we were able to talk and she's a dear friend now and all of that, she left and my, I had two reactions. I had one, I was like, yikes, this is what it means to sit on this side. But two, shame on us. Shame on us for creating an environment in which that's what this person who was amazing in every respect of that word believes that that's what she viewed as her value to me, someone who'd sat in that seat for maybe two weeks and had not earned that respect. And so I I say all that to say amongst development professionals, that's what happens. That's why you're meeting with folks is for at, at the heart for that reason. And shame at us for creating an industry in which that pomp and circumstance and that kind of dynamic has to exist for a $25,000 grant, right? Like that's, that's just not where we want to be uh, as an industry at all. I, I so appreciate that story. And, you know, it, yeah, I think what's so hard for me, you know, even as we use words like authenticity or try to help fundraisers is like, sometimes I worry, am I in teaching them how to be more embodied or emboldened or to walk into those situations with less of a protective shield up that leaves them open to real connection and real authentic relationships, then they are going to walk into the room with funders who are not you. And am I putting them in situations where then they're re-traumatized or they're, you know, it, it leads to, you know, harm down the line. Like this is something I grapple with in my, in my own work all the time is like, how do we, how do we hold this balance of both like helping people 
on both sides, right? Be, be, be open and ready and prepared for true connection without overexposing them to a level of vulnerability that harms them later when it's not us who are going to take care of them. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, listen, I, um, couple of points here. I know I'm on the, you know, as a, you know, I had a development Excel sheet of groups that I was trying to approach. uh, And I know that I was supposed to get after, like, you know, I watched, you know, a a gazelle trying to get this person. And if I got them, if I got the meeting, and if I got them to say yes, I I got that gazelle. I didn't think about when I, you know, a long time ago, when I was like a fundraiser specifically, that, you know, as I look at it now is that that's, that's troubling. Right. That kind of thing. When I go, when I see fundraising conferences, I won't name the national, you know, organizations that do that. But what I will say, and I look at their tracks, sometimes I walk away and say, you're exacerbating an issue here in which, you know, if I'm a fundraiser, what I am, you know, we struggle with an industry of, of organizations that don't have the ability to tell their stories well. And that's because we're telling our stories based on these networks and telling uh, telling us how to tell these stories. And I think if, if I'm looking at somebody who's a really good fundraiser, what I'm really looking at is somebody who's a really good griot, is a really good storyteller, is the ability on behalf of organizations who are doing the work every day to be able to tell that story. And the goal is not to tackle a gazelle. The goal is to create relationship, right? And they should be honored and rewarded for relationships created. And if those relationships don't create money or resource or whatever, that's okay, right? Like, but that's not the way that fundraising works, right? It's more akin to always be closing uh, on the sales side. And unfortunately, we've made that industry again, more akin to corporate sales than we've made it as a, a network of storytellers creating relationships. Okay, I'm so curious what you're going to say to this next question. So I because, you know, as a fundraiser, and I'm sure that you experienced this too. There's this conversation around building relationships, but mixed with this inauthentic way of being right. It's like create relationships. But you know, your goal is to get this amount of money but you're not allowed to talk about money, at least right away. You have to pretend that you just want to build a relationship, but we're going to hold you accountable to getting that money. And I remember as a, like first being thrown into fundraising, being like, wait a second. Okay. So I'm like going into these situations with this goal that I'm not allowed to talk about, but somehow I'm supposed to wait for the right moment to bring it up when I transition this authentic relationship into being about one thing, but then converting it to another. And everybody's supposed to know when this moment happens in maybe 12 to 18 months, but I'm not being clear that that's where I want this relationship to go. And just like the confusion that I felt around all of these like bells and whistles that we were kind of supposed to like play with to potentially one day lead us somewhere. And so the way I teach fundraising today is like really around transparency, not that you're asking for money at that first interaction, but that you're saying, look, the purpose, this relationship has purpose, hopefully, which is that we, uh, we see your desire to do X. Our desire is to do that too in this way. My hope would be in the future, there might be an opportunity for us to work together, assuming we feel in alignment, this relationship feels good, we build this relationship, and it feels good to both of us. 
but that there's clarity around like, I'm not just looking to like make a new friend here. I'm curious, like on the funder side, how that level of transparency feels, what you feel like you need in order to feel more like open to really be able to sink into that trust-based philanthropy. And what, what are the things that sort of make you be like, oh, like, do I have the full picture here? This doesn't feel real or make you feel a little bit more uncomfortable in that relationship? Yeah. So a couple of things I would say. So for us, we view, you know, we don't view ourselves as a philanthropy. We view ourselves as a, as a, you know, as a company, we have several levers that can advance, that can be helpful in advancing the self-determination of the communities where we, where we're fortunate enough to work. And so one of those levers is, is institutional philanthropy, right? We have grant dollars, but we also have six other ways that we can be helpful. And so, you know, we have uh, employees that have both, you know, we have an amazing way that our employees can get matching gifts and they like to get their fingernails dirty and serve. We have a capacity building program in which we have over 1500 organizations and individuals that take advantage of our capacity building program. Uh, it's robust, it's targeted, it's as effective and effic- uh, effective of a capacity building program you're going to see. And we know that nonprofits have less than 1% of any other dollars that are dedicated to professional development. And so that's a area that we use. Uh, we are very, you know, we use social capital and we use it really well. We just had a group today that doesn't get a grant from us, but that we were able to make a connection to them, uh, to somebody else. And they got resources out of that relationship. So we're really, we view social capital as important as our philanthropic capital, right? We've created our own initiatives where we incubate them here using our infrastructure and giving them out into community. And so there's about 20 programs that kind of put a patch on the safety net in areas where where we can be really helpful. Uh, and then we have a thing called shared value where we use our infrastructure of our company. So not to get too, but for us, it's about, you know, cities and communities struggle with infrastructure. And that is what companies have in abundance. And so if a fundraiser was coming to, to Tiro with only the idea that they wanted ph- uh, philanthropic support, we would say you're you're missing out on actually what we could provide. So our job is to is to get to know them and to say what of the levers that we have can we support you? Uh, and those levers might be different now than they might be a couple of years from now. Development or uh, development consultants struggle with us because they are used to this dynamic of getting this funder. And for us, what we're saying is that's, we're just, not, that's not what we're about. You may get funding from us. You may be able to get a connection to other funders through us. You may get capacity building from us. You might get a variety of different levers from us, but our job is number one, to get to know you. And then the number two, to figure out which of those levers make sense for you right now. And the mo- our average length of relationship is 15 years. And so you may have, you may use, you know, use a couple levers this year. You may use all of them next year. You may go back and use one. It's an ongoing journey for us to figure out. And that's very relational, right? And so we're not going to be a gazelle because that's not the way our model works. That's difficult for, for some fundraising professionals who are, have their, their, their whole kind of infrastructure and the railroad tracks geared on the idea that we're a name on a list that they've got to check off. And we're just not going to be that. Um, and, you know, we have seven different, you know, a number of different ways in which we give institutional grant making. But grant making is is equal to all of the other ways that we can be helpful. 
and where our job is to try to find out what of what we have is going to be most useful to you at the point in your life where you are right now. Gosh, it is it is so I mean, I'm so grateful for the way you all show up in this space and I I wish and hope that other funders, you know, hear this and listen to this and and set out on a journey to be able to show up in similar ways. I can also imagine that for the fundraiser, it is so hard to navigate, right? It's like their boss is like annual goals, right? And they're like, okay, here's this like organization I want to invest time and relationship with and be on a 15-year journey. And no other funder is treating me that way. Everybody else is like on this annual cycle and this, this, pull and push of like of all the different systems that ultimately like impact how how they try to prioritize their limited time to achieve outsized goals with no support it's just like there's so much that's broken i'm i'm curious for for funders who might be listening to this who are like okay like we're light years away from doing things the way you do them but we want to start a journey towards that what would you recommend yeah, I mean, again, listen, every day we're, you know, we don't have it right uh, either. Every day is an evolution in our philanthropic, and not only in our philanthropic model, but our in community investment model. And we're hoping that we're advancing better and better uh, on that work. We have folks that let us know where those advancements should be. Um, and so we're just can, you know, trust based is not a checklist. It's a, it's a marathon muscle. It's, it's like wellness. You're never a hundred percent well. You're always working for better wellness every day. That's what this, that's what this should be, but you got to start somewhere, right? You know, if I use wellness myself, I used, you know, I lost 120 pounds. One day I had to get up and put on shorts and start working out. Right. And so I think if you've, you know, to use for groups that are trying to figure that out, maybe that lever is becoming uh, a portion of your grants that are multi making them one year to multi year. From a company side, like that was actually really easy because we were <laughs> we were given the same grants to folks year after year anyway. And so when we said, well, why wouldn't why let's just uh let's just make them three-year grants, right? It saves us on the admin side of doing this work year after year. You know, but what you might see in some other groups is well, if I'm not reviewing grants every year, well then what's my job? Well, make a new job. <laughs> There's a lot of we need a lot of help, right? And so I think, you know, for, you know, to your question, I think picking some spaces to start in for us, the unrest in Baltimore was the impetus behind us making some of those changes. And then we just started to do it and kept doing it and kept doing it for others. If they don't have a moment to create that, then pick a pilot in some areas and start there. Uh, what you're going to notice is your community members are going to say, thank you. Wow, they're going to start talking about you in different ways. That's that's awesome, right? That's what you want. Uh, and so I think pick some spaces and, and some fishing holes and start there and just keep advancing. Our job is, you know, we're going to tr- we're trying every day to do this work in the best way that we know how. And if the best way we know how is helpful to other companies, we'll stay up late and we'll wake up early and we'll talk to you all day. We'll go and you know, we went and visited a global company's. Uh, executive management committee and talk to them about our model, right? Like we're happy to do all of that to, to, to be helpful. That's our advocacy role, but start somewhere and keep building from there. 
Yeah, I I love that. And I love your advice earlier that I just want to double click on where, you know, if you're not getting any feedback about things that aren't feeling good, there's your number one sign that there likely is not trust or authentic relationship building. And I think some, some of your like wisdom and reflection on the power dynamics. I did this really interesting interview with um, Vanessa Bonds, who wrote the um, You Have More Influence Than You Think. And we did a two-part series, one for fundraisers, but one for funders as well around the psychology of influence and even how we don't, how power impacts influence in ways that we don't even realize, like thinking that the grantee has as much agency as we do. And so of course, they would tell us if something isn't working, but that actually that isn't how power impacts us psychologically. And I think being aware of those dynamics and the awareness that you've shared, um, and of course, coming from being on the front, you know, in community and fundraising, you know, but I think the more that funders can um, increase their awareness around the, the power that they're walking into rooms with, you know, the better they'll be able to build authentic relationships. Well, I mean, I think the thing we would say is, you know, like when we were developing our application, right, which for us now, it's an application that we think is really helpful. Uh, it's it's the opposite of an application. It's more like a concierge, uh, but it asks yeah, five simple questions. They can upload their, their, their favorite grant application, all of those types of things. But how we got there was a little bit akin to how companies do mystery shopper, right? Where you have somebody come in that you don't know and they, you know, if they're going into Dunkin' Donuts and they buy a donut and they tell you how their experience was, we did that with our process, right? We had folks walk in and they felt, you know, they, they were a mystery shopper for our process and it told us a lot. Uh, and I think there's lots of really great ways that you can get feedback. Uh, and you can do it in ways that respect, you know, that uh, kind of understand the power dynamic. And I think uh, you can do it in, in so many ways that help you get the right information that can help you look at yourself truly, right? And I think that's the ultimate goal now is to try to see yourself as the community sees you with mm. all your spots and be okay with that. Yeah. And it sounds like there's some deep work and ego work that has to be done, like inside companies and organizations and individuals to be able to really show up in that in the spirit of that collaboration and trust and authenticity. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate you. I so appreciate your vocal advocacy on behalf of trust-based philanthropy and nonprofits and um and just sharing so transparently about your own journey, T. Rose's journey, um, and willingness to be a resource, you know, to the to the community in so many different ways. So, thank you so much. Thank you, and uh, to your listeners, uh, good luck on your journey, and let me know where I can be helpful. Thank you. hope today's episode inspired or challenged you to think differently. For additional takeaways, tips, show notes, and more about our amazing guests and sponsors, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast. And if you didn't know, hosting this podcast isn't the only thing I do. Every day I coach, guide, and help fundraisers and leaders just like you inside of my program, the Power Partners Formula Collective. Inside the program, I share my methods, tools, and experiences that have helped me fundraise millions of dollars and feel good about myself in the process. To learn more about how I can help you, visit MalloryErickson.com backslash powerpartners. 
Last but not least, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to encourage you to share it with a friend you know would benefit or leave a review. I'm so grateful for all of you and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. I can't wait to see you in the next episode. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.